The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Today, I will present to you a bonus episode written by Spoon River Gothic co-producer Samantha Thomas. This report shall pertain to Samantha's subjective analysis of the defense and prosecution team's closing arguments during Donald Bull's 1996 trial. Ladies and gentlemen, throughout chapters 47 to 50, of Spoon River Gothic Podcast. We heard directly from the prosecution and defense. Now, we shall dig into those closing arguments and draw our own conclusions. The Case The name Donald Bull, the man accused of the heinous murders of Donna Tompkins and her three-year-old daughter Justine, evokes this profoundly unsettling narrative, which compels us to confront the complex nature of justice and truth. At the core of this case, the story begins as a simple transaction. Donna purchased a used sofa bed from Donald Bull, a man she barely knew. But what starts as a seemingly innocuous encounter between acquaintances quickly spirals into a nightmarish scenario that shakes the community of Canton, Illinois to its core. On one side of the courtroom, you have the prosecution, composed of state's attorney Ed Danner and co-counsel Ed Parkinson and the prosecution asserts that Donald Bull deliberately ignited the fire that consumed Donna and Justine with cruel intent, painting a vivid portrait of benevolence. They lean heavily on DNA evidence linking Bull to the crime scene, a scientific thread they say undoubtedly connects him to the tragedy. But science alone cannot capture the depths of human motivation and darkness. Conversely, the defense, composed of attorney Dean Stone and co-counsel, Alyssa McMillan, endeavors to unravel the prosecution's narrative, suggesting that the victim's deaths were due to the fire's inferno, not an act of murder. They question the reliability of witnesses and the adequacy of the police investigation, introducing an element of doubt that looms over the entire case. Yet it's not just the evidence that is under scrutiny here. It's our collective faith in the justice system, our ability to discern truth and humanity's very essence. Amid this harrowing tale, we're forced to confront the fragility of our understanding, the potential for manipulation, and the limits of forensic science. The prosecution's closing argument in the Donald Bull case is a meticulously crafted narrative designed to convey to the jury of Bull's guilt through several key points and persuasive strategies. Firstly, they emphasize the trio of rings associated with Donna Tompkins, a signet ring, a replacement ring, and an opal ring. These rings hold sentimental value and are intricately connected to Donna's identity, with witnesses attesting to their significance in her life. The prosecution skillfully utilizes this emotional connection to create a bridge between Bull and the victim, suggesting a possible link between Donnie and Donna's tragic fate. State's attorney Ed Danner addresses the court. The presence of what appeared to be a stain, possibly blood, on Bull's jacket 
is brought into the spotlight by state's attorney Ed Danner. He paints a picture of an individual attempting to conceal evidence, subtly reinforcing the idea of his guilt. And divergent accounts of the location where Bull claimed to have gotten a flat tire the morning of Donna's murder adds complexity to the case. Mr. Danner suggests that Bull's deviation from the established timeline is a clear red flag, raising questions about his credibility. The state's attorney also introduces a letter written by Bull from prison, expressing concern about DNA evidence. This letter, they argue, implies Bull's awareness of impending charges and a consciousness of guilt. However, the letter does not directly admit guilt, leaving its interpretation undoubtedly open for debate. Tactics The strengths and weaknesses of the prosecution's case during the Bull trial reveal a complex and multifaceted narrative. One of the notable strengths lies in the prosecution's ability to craft an emotional and compelling narrative that connects Bull to the victim, particularly through Donna's rings. By emphasizing the sentimental value of these rings and presenting witnesses who testify to their significance in Donna's life, the prosecution tries to create a powerful emotional link between Bull and Donna. This connection can sway the jury's perception and make considering Bull a possible perpetrator easier. However, weaknesses in the prosecution's case are also notable. The most significant disadvantage is the absence of concrete evidence directly linking Bull to the crime scene. In a criminal trial, physical evidence often carries substantial weight, and the lack of such evidence can raise doubts about the strength of the case. Without clear and irrefutable forensic proof connecting Bull to the crime, the prosecution's argument relies heavily on circumstantial evidence and interpretation. While intriguing, the letter from prison presented by Mr. Danner falls short of being definitive proof of Bull's guilt. It expresses Bull's concern about DNA evidence, but does not provide a direct confession or admission of guilt. Therefore, its interpretation remains debatable and may not conclusively establish his involvement in the crimes. Furthermore, testimonies from individuals like Bull's friend and co-worker Mike Price and others are subject to interpretation and the limits of human memory. Various factors can influence people's recollections, and their statements may not always align perfectly with the facts. This introduces an element of doubt regarding the accuracy and reliability of witness testimonies, which the defense can exploit to challenge the prosecution's case. Considering these factors, the presence of reasonable doubt in multiple aspects of the prosecution's case is evident. The jury's duty to examine the evidence thoroughly and carefully becomes paramount. They must weigh the strengths and weaknesses of the prosecution's argument, consider alternative explanations, and critically assess the credibility of witnesses. The jury can only arrive at a just verdict through a meticulous evaluation, as the stakes in this complex legal drama are nothing short of determining the fate of Donable's life and potential execution. The Defense's Case The courtroom stands in solemn anticipation, as Mr. Stone and Ms. McMillan the formidable defense team representing Donald Bull set out to address the assembly with the defense's closing argument. The weight of justice hangs in the balance, and the verdict the jury will soon deliver will not only impact the life of Donald Bull, but also serve as a testament of integrity of our legal system. Mr. Stone, who will speak on behalf of the defense first, is tasked to sow seeds of reasonable doubt within the meticulously woven tapestry of the prosecution's narrative. Let us delve deeply into the critical areas Mr. Stone meticulously dissects in his closing argument, each illumination revealing why they cast a shadow and a looming specter of uncertainty upon the prosecution's claims. 
Mr. Stone addresses the court. Mr. Stone delivers a compelling closing argument on behalf of Donable, skillfully aiming to plant seeds of reasonable doubt in the jurors' minds. He meticulously dissects the prosecution's narrative, focusing on crucial aspects of the case. Firstly, he questions the cause of death, emphasizing the stark contrast between forensic experts and casting doubt on the prosecution's claims by pointing out the absence of concrete evidence to support their allegations. Mr. Stone then turns his attention to police conduct and the reliability of informants, particularly Christopher Chester and Harold Crozer, who have questionable backgrounds to say the least and potential motives. He also highlights the absence of documented notes during police interviews, which additionally raises doubts about the integrity of the investigation process. The centerpiece of the prosecution's case is the opal ring found on Donna Bull's belongings, which had been identified as Donna's ring by multiple sources, including her sisters. Mr. Stone, however, deftly constructs a narrative that reveals the emotional biases influencing the identification create an aura of uncertainty around the ring's true identity. The defense also focuses on the relationship between Donna and Donald Bull, introducing a personal letter as evidence to portray their connection as consensual and intimate, contrary to the allegations of sexual assault. DNA analysis and expert testimony further support this argument, challenging the significance of the DNA evidence presented by the prosecution. Associates of Donald Bull become instrumental in the defense's efforts to cast a substantial doubt on the allegations of criminal activity. Witnesses like Donnie's girlfriend at the time, Rochelle Hillmeyer, and her mother, Jacqueline Day, challenged the prosecution's narrative through discrepancies and inconsistencies in their testimonies. For example, Day had never mentioned to police in her initial interview seeing her daughter's car parked outside of Donna's apartment early in the morning hours before the fire on the 13th of January. However, on the stand, Jacqueline testifies that she had, in fact, seen her daughter's car on the side of the road. This should have ultimately weakened the soundness of the prosecution's case. Lastly, Mr. Stone delves into the nature of the fire itself, meanwhile highlighting missing photographic evidence. Expert testimonies highlighted by Mr. Stone about the nature of the fire further deepen the uncertainty surrounding the prosecution's narrative. Particularly, Fire Marshal Anderson, who had written an initial 30-page report on how the fire had been hot, fast, and intense, on the stand made a 180-degree turn, stating that the fire had been slow and smoldering a potential change one cannot help but question if Fire Marshal Anderson intended to fit the prosecution's new timeline and narrative. Throughout his closing argument, Mr. Stone underscores the importance of doubt in the justice system, emphasizing that the prosecution bears the burden of proof. His defense effectively challenges the credibility of informants, exposes weaknesses in forensic evidence, and raises questions about police conduct. The argument reinforces the presumption of innocence, and the need for a high standard of proof in criminal trials. Ms. McMillan addresses the court. Ms. McMillan's closing argument revolves around four key pillars that shroud the prosecution's case in doubt. First, she meticulously dissects the timeline of events to emphasize the absence of evidence linking Donable to the crime scene on the morning of January the 13th. Miss Naus, a cleaning lady for the home's owner, who lived in her own separate apartment in the building, gives a testimony that highlights the lack of any signs of fire, smoke, or suspicious individuals during that crucial time when the prosecution claims the fire began. This absence of evidence challenges the prosecution's narrative. Secondly, Miss McMillan skillfully casts doubt on the reliability of Trust Officer David Haynes, a key witness for the prosecution 
who had also been the one to discover the fire at Donna's apartment that morning. She exposes the inconsistencies and evolution of his account surrounding the fire, undermining his credibility by highlighting Haynes' attempt to distance himself from the fire's origin and the changing nature of his relationship with Donna Tompkins. And by pointing out these factors, Miss McMillan successfully redirects the jury's attention to a more plausible suspect, at least momentarily. Next, Miss McMillan focuses on the sudden change in the testimony of Ted Anderson, an investigator for the Illinois State Fire Marshal's office. She points out the inconsistency in Anderson's theory about the fire's origin and behavior, which raises questions about his credibility. By contrasting Anderson's evolving testimony with Pat Burns' account, another fire expert who testified on behalf of the defense, she underlines the inconsistencies in the prosecution's case and challenges the credibility of key witnesses. Lastly, Ms. McMillan emphasizes the credibility issues surrounding the state's informants, Christopher Chester and Harold Crozer. She highlights their criminal backgrounds, potential motives, and the favorable outcomes they received shortly after cooperating with the state, suggesting that deals or promises may have influenced their testimony. Additionally, she questions the ultimate value of the DNA evidence, arguing that it merely cooperates what Donald Bull admitted in a letter and doesn't provide new or conclusive evidence linking him to the murders or the fire. By proposing alternative explanations for the DNA traces, such as consensual encounters, she undermines the significance of the DNA findings. Miss McMillan's closing argument masterfully crafts an atmosphere of doubt, inviting the jury to question, probe more profoundly, and uphold the presumption of innocence. It highlights the prosecution's burden of proof and demonstrates how a skillful defense can eclipse seemingly solid cases with shadows of uncertainty. Ed Parkinson addresses the court. A feisty co-counsel, Ed Parkinson, makes the prosecution's final remarks and makes a compelling case for a guilty verdict in the Donald Bull trial. He refutes the notion that Donald Bull was unfairly targeted, emphasizing the thoroughness of the investigation that considered multiple male suspects, each with varying degrees of connection to Donna. Mr. Parkinson highlights the significance of voluntary cooperation by other suspects in providing blood samples. He presents the forensic implication of the presence of sperm during the autopsy, suggesting sexual assault as a crucial element of their case. Additionally, Parkinson leverages the scientific rigor of the investigation to eliminate the other four male suspects through scientific means, asserting their objectivity and impartiality of the process. The timeline of events leading up to January 13th is presented in detail, emphasizing the interconnected relationships between Donna and the male suspects, raising questions about their motives. Regarding the opal ring, co-counsel reaffirms this belief that the ring found in Donna Bull's possession is indeed Donna's, backed by the testimony of her sisters. Parkinson also argues whether or not the stone in the ring was a genuine opal, which had been refuted as irrelevant and that the emotional significance is what matters most. Analysis of the State's Final Remarks it is essential to address the emotional and persuasive elements the prosecution harps on to convince the jury Donald Bull is guilty of the crimes he's charged with. The prosecution skillfully uses emotional appeals, emphasizing the significance of Donna's relationships and those rings. However, it should be pointed out that their case has some discrepancies and assumptions. Donna's complex relationships with other male suspects are glossed over, for one, and deeper motives and conflicts need exploration. Donna's interactions with these men were far from simple and benign. 
and the emotional conflicts and potential motives surrounding her life should be explored to create a more comprehensive perspective on this case. This detailed analysis may raise questions about whether any of these men had reasons or motives that could have influenced the tragic events, which can contribute to establishing reasonable doubt. Examining these relationships in greater detail is essential, as they hold the key to understanding the events of January 13, 1993. Rod Franciscovich. The prosecution acknowledges an ongoing relationship between Donna and Rod Franciscovich, but the true nature of their relationship is likely more complex. Questions may arise about the depth of their emotional connection and any unresolved conflicts or lingering emotions that could have influenced their interactions. It is important to consider that Donna had a pregnancy scare with Rod as the would-be father. This near pregnancy could have created emotional tensions between the two. Additionally, the defense could have further inquired whether Rod knew of Donna's other intimate relationships. Terry Haynes Donna's decision to end her relationship with Terry Haynes, due to concerns about controlling an abusive behavior, raises a significant red flag. It implies a possible motive rooted in resentment, anger, jealousy, and the list goes on. We know from previous episodes that there was a phone call where Terry professed his love for Donna, only for her to reject him, for him to lash out with profanities just days before the tragic events unfolded. This raises questions about whether Terry harbored unresolved feelings and whether they contributed to the situation. John Tompkins While the prosecution characterizes Donna's relationship with her estranged husband John as someone she got along with, quote, Fine. This is quite an absurd summarization made by the state's attorney. There were deeper issues to consider, and Donna's fear of him was well known throughout her circle of friends and family. Moreover, her refusal to let John inside her home should have been explored further, and just how far the pre-existing psychological abuse had transitioned into physical violence has to be considered. The tumultuous divorce proceedings and the potential motives arising from this turmoil would have been essential to understanding the complexities of this case. David Haynes. The prosecution simplifies David Haynes' role as Donna's employer, but essential details must be considered. The close relationship between Donna and her boss and ex-boyfriend David, along with the greater Haynes family, allegations of an affair, and hints of jealousy from David's wife, Sarah, should not be dismissed lightly. These emotional entanglements could be crucial in understanding the complexities of this case. And beyond that, David Haynes is the only person who could be placed at the scene of the crime that day. Throughout the investigation, David's stories of how the events unfolded that morning have changed over and over, especially when it comes to details about the fire, not to mention his odd statement that he may have accidentally set off a booby trap at Donna's house that morning, nor his claim that after breaking in, he impossibly stood just inside the door without being blown out by a violent backdraft as the fire took a deep gulp of sudden oxygen. DNA the DNA evidence, while powerful, has limitations that the prosecution downplays. We can undermine the prosecution's assertion that the DNA evidence is ironclad and unassailable by emphasizing these limitations. It becomes clear that, while valuable, DNA evidence is not a foolproof guarantee of guilt, and reasonable doubt should prevail, especially given individual analysis reliability, professionalism, and experience. DNA evidence can't pinpoint the exact time when genetic material was deposited, and in this case, 
Just because Donald Bull's sperm was found during Donna Tompkins' autopsy doesn't conclusively establish that he was at the crime scene on the morning of January 13, 1993. DNA evidence, such as spermatosa, can persist for extended periods and still be viable for analysis. This ambiguity means that the presence of Bull's spermatosa could have resulted from a previous encounter, making it unreliable as the sole indicator of his involvement on that specific morning, nor is it a sound basis to prove a sexual assault indeed had occurred. The Timeline The magnitude of timeline discrepancies, such as Rod's initial timeline of events, when questioned right after the fire, compared to that which the prosecution gave in court, raises undeniable questions about the integrity of the state's examination of this case. The two glaring discrepancies are on January 8th and January 11th. Friday night, January 8th. According to the state, Donna spent Friday night at Rod Franciscovich's house. Rod's account contradicts this, claiming he spent the night at Donna's place. Rod mentions that he got there around 1.30 a.m. and they engaged in sexual relations. He further describes activities like folding the sofa bed, putting cushions back on the couch, and folding a specific flower pattern blanket. This detailed contradiction between the two accounts raises questions about the accuracy of the state's examination of this timeline. Monday night, January the 11th. According to the state's account, Rod and Donna engaged in sexual relations on Monday night. On the other hand, Rod's initial account states that he went straight home after work, arrived home by 11 p.m., and did not see Donna that night. This is a significant contradiction, as it disputes Rod's and the state's official claim that they were together that night and engaged in sexual activity. The discrepancy in this crucial detail is a critical factor that should be highlighted in analysis. State's attorney Ed Danner also goes on to use wordplay of sorts to confuse the jury into believing it was impossible Donna and Donnie Bull could have been together Sunday night, as Donnie had claimed, because Donna had been with Rod both Saturday night and Monday night. As confusing as this statement was, one would have to go back and listen to the transcript a few times very carefully, timestamp 20 minutes and 29 seconds, to digest just how easily Mr. Danner could have intentionally fooled the jury. The ring. The prosecution also strongly asserts that the ring found in Donable's possession undoubtedly belonged to Donna Tompkins, forming a key element connecting him to the crime. They argue that the ring was confirmed to be Donna's by her sisters, who were intimately familiar with her jewelry, and therefore, the authenticity of the opal stone was in fact irrelevant. We learn through testimony from Joanne Folk, a co-worker of Donna's passionate about opals since it was her birthstone, that the ring Donna wore daily was in fact an opal. She also asserted that the ring known as Exhibit 62 was Donna's, as did Donna's sisters and many other loved ones. However, we learn from expert testimony from jeweler Mr. Ricketts that Exhibit 62 was unequivocally not an opal. Whether the ring was a genuine opal or a convincing imitation carries significance because it highlights reasonable doubt in this case. If everyone in Donna's life believed that the ring was an opal, it becomes uncertain whether this piece of evidence truly ties Mr. Bull to the crime. Additionally, we know that this ring can be reproduced relatively easily as Mr. Ricketts claimed he could make hundreds of these exact rings if given the proper materials. In essence, the defense's argument concerning the ring raises doubts about the prosecution's claim 
emphasizing that this item alone cannot establish a connection between Donald Bowl and the crime. By highlighting the lack of distinctiveness in the subjective nature of the identification, the defense effectively challenges the ring's role as a decisive piece of evidence. Glaring Questions and Concerns In the realm of criminal justice, the prosecution bears a profound responsibility that extends far beyond securing a conviction. It is, fundamentally, a pursuit of truth and justice. In this case, the prosecution is tasked with providing compelling and irrefutable evidence to establish the guilt of the accused, in this case, Donald Bull. Their responsibility lies in meticulously constructing a narrative that weaves together the threads of circumstantial and direct evidence, painting a coherent picture that leaves no room for reasonable doubt. Can I tell you how I would have voted if I sat on the jury during this trial? No, I certainly cannot. But after months of digging into police interviews, conducting our own interviews, and being privy to information the jury did not have, there is room to at least question the conviction of Donald Bull. And there are three glaring reasons why. 1. Timeline Discrepancies Diving into the intriguing discrepancy within the January 11th timeline, contrasting Rod's initial statement with the version presented in court, unveils a perplexing question. What prompted such a significant shift in the narrative? Let's entertain a hypothetical scenario where events align with Rod's original account. On Sunday, January 10th, after church, Donna and her daughter Justine visited Rod's house, spending a couple of hours there. Donna then goes to work her shift at the Elkside evening of the Kmart Christmas party. Now, on Monday, January the 11th, she follows her usual routine, arriving at the National Bank of Canton in the morning for work. Rod's phone conversations with Donna throughout the day paint a clear picture of her activities. He heads to work at 2 p.m., returning home around 11 p.m., without ever seeing Donna. This leaves Sunday and Monday nights for Donna to be without Rod's company. Here's where it gets intriguing. Donna Bull's letter confirms a sexual encounter with Donna Tompkins took place in the early hours of January the 11th, aligning with her schedule. As we explore the scientific perspective, Dr. Ph.D. geneticist Ronald Ostrowski lends crucial insight. He confirms the possibility that spermatosa from January the 11th could remain intact, citing readings that show semen being detectable up to five to six days post-intercourse. If this version of events had been presented to the jury during the trial, one would naturally expect the specter of doubt to loom over their deliberations. But as we know, this isn't the sequence of events the jury heard. Prosecution and Rod testify that Donna and Rod spent the night together on Monday, January the 11th, refuting Rod's initial claim. The significance of this alteration cannot be overstated. If we accept this revised timeline, it implies that the only opportunity for Donna Bull's sperm to be found within Donna during the autopsy conducted on January 14th would be if he engaged in intercourse with her either on January 12th or the 13th. This coincides neatly with the coroner's report, indicating that intercourse likely occurred 24 to 48 hours before the autopsy. It was indeed a peculiar twist, and while it was considered that intercourse might have happened just before Donna's death, the report did not provide a definitive timeline. The perplexing aspect here is not just the shift in Rod's story, but the distinctive absence of a more illuminating spotlight on this matter by the defense. If their objective was to cast reasonable doubt, this inconsistency is an undeniable opportunity. 
It leaves us pondering why Rod's account underwent such transformation and why this curious facet did not receive more attention during the trial. These unanswered questions sow a seed of doubt, beckoning us to scrutinize this case discerningly. Two, the opal versus the signet. Unraveling the state's portrayal of Donna's rings reveals a web of confusion and ambiguity. The rings in question mainly exhibit 62, the opal ring, and Donna's signet ring with initials, though not her own, couldn't be more distinct in style and seemingly easy to differentiate. However, the state's narrative often blurs the lines between these two rings, prompting one to ponder whether this tactic was executed deliberately. While such intentions may remain unverifiable, let's scrutinize an illustrative transcript excerpt from Parkinson's discussion of the rings. At timestamp 6 minutes and 45 seconds to 6 minutes and 53 seconds, he references the signet ring, insinuating that it wasn't stolen because it was easily recognizable and not a high value item. However, at 6 minutes and 55 seconds to 7 minutes and 11 seconds, Mr. Ricketts, the jeweler, introduces an entirely different perspective unrelated to the signet ring in question. He discusses a ring with garnets added, presumably referring to Donna's opal ring, not the signet ring. Phrases like, that is a ring that has had garnets added on later, and I don't know if it's really unique, but maybe it is unique to someone who owned it. These statements pertain solely to the opal ring, not the signet ring, yet they are intertwined within the same discussion in order to potentially fool the jurors. This type of convolution in the descriptions can have significant implications during a trial. It risks not only confusing the jury, who might believe that they have a grasp of the situation when in fact they're navigating a labyrinth of misleading details, but also the state's responsibility in a criminal case is to provide clear and accurate information, ensuring a fair and just trial. When this responsibility is cluttered with such convoluted explanations and an apparent blending of facts, it raises ethical concerns. Ambiguity and confusion can cloud the judgment of the jurors, potentially affecting the outcome of the trial. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we must ask ourselves, why was this not adequately addressed by the defense team? And did Donald Bull receive a fair defense? For example, in the defense's closing argument, there would have been several effective ways to address the state's unclear description of the rings and the potential ethical implications involved. They should have clearly and concisely explained the two rings, Donna's signet ring with initials, and Exhibit 62, the opal ring. This presentation should be straightforward and emphasize the stark differences in style, value, and significance between the two. The defense can counteract the state's misleading descriptions by offering a clear contrast. They could have questioned the state's conduct by suggesting that the confusing or misleading descriptions may not be accidental. Without making direct accusations, the defense could have prompted the jury to consider the ethics of obscuring the clarity of evidence and narratives in a court of law. They could have reminded the jury of the burden of proof and that it's the fundamental principle that the burden of proof rests with this prosecution, highlighting that the state is responsible for providing clear, credible, and convincing evidence to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Any ambiguity or confusion should not favor the prosecution, but rather cast doubt on their case. 3. Again, the DNA. The DNA evidence is often portrayed as the linchpin of the prosecution's case, the unassailable proof that Donald Bull was at the scene of the crime. However, after scrutinizing both sides of the argument, I don't know about you ladies and gentlemen, 
but I'm left with a lingering uncertainty. It's not that I'm convinced that the DNA doesn't connect Bolt to Donna, but rather, I'm not entirely sure if the state's timeline of events is as sound as they claim. Consider Rod's original account, where he clearly stated that he and Donna didn't spend the night of the 11th together. This becomes crucial because if we accept the state's version of events, it will logically follow that they found Donna Bolt guilty of these crimes. However, if the jury had given more attention to the timeline and agreed with Rod's original statement, this would have underscored the immense importance of the timeline. If the jury would have given more attention to the timeline, the immense importance of that timeline, this would have underscored the immense importance of the timeline and highlight what seems like a missed opportunity for the defense to illuminate further doubts surrounding the case. The skepticism about DNA evidence arises primarily from reservations about the state's proposed timeline of events. It's important to note that while the prosecution insists the DNA irrefutably connects Donna Bowl to the crime scene, that's 100% untrue. Here's why. We have heard from expert witnesses that the sperm DNA can persist up to six days, adding doubt to the supposed link between Bowl and the crime scene. Essentially, the DNA evidence tells us what we already know. Donna had some form of attraction to Mr. Bull, a point validated by her best friend and co-worker Iona Price. It also confirms that Donna and Mr. Bull had a sexual encounter a few days before her tragic death, which Mr. Bull acknowledged in the letter to Mike Price. However, the crucial gap in this argument is that nothing in the DNA evidence unequivocally places Donna Bull at the crime scene on January 13, 1993. The DNA alone doesn't definitively pinpoint his presence there at the moment of the crime. Final Thoughts At the heart of our criminal justice system lies the crucial and profound concept of reasonable doubt. This bedrock principle ensures that no person is unjustly convicted of a crime, reinforcing the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. It serves as a formidable barrier that the prosecution must overcome necessitating that they establish the defendant's guilt beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors. The weight of this responsibility cannot be overstated, as it underscores the gravity of the decisions jurors must make and the profound impact their verdicts will have on all parties involved. In the intricate case of Donald Bull, the prosecution and defense engaged in an arduous legal battle, presenting arguments that sought to persuade the jurors in opposing directions. The prosecution has meticulously crafted a narrative suggesting Bull's involvement in the crimes, chiefly resting on the bedrock of DNA evidence and the discovery of a ring found in his belongings. Conversely, the defense has undertaken the equally demanding task of dismantling the prosecution's case. This process has entailed revealing inconsistencies, challenging the reliability of informants, and subjecting forensic evidence to stringent scrutiny. Their collective aim has been to sow the seeds of reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors. The Jury In an intricate legal process such as the Bull Trial, the jury bears an immense burden upon its conscience. The jury must sift through the information presented, evaluate the credibility of witnesses, and ultimately arrive at a decision that adheres to the principle of reasonable doubt. And in doing so, they hold the fate of Donald Bull in their hands the emotional well-being of the victim's family, and the integrity of the justice system itself. Their role extends beyond mere determinations of guilt or innocence. They are the guardians of justice. 
they must ensure that justice is served and seen to be served as they weigh the arguments, dissect the evidence, and navigate the complexities of this case, they must emerge with a verdict that honors the principle of reasonable doubt. In cases as multifaceted as the Bull case, replete with many factors, testimonies, and pieces of evidence, the jury's role becomes pivotal and profoundly critical. Their verdict will not only decide the fate of Donald Bull, but will also echo throughout the corridors of justice, shaping the contours of the legal system. In sum, the jury carries a heavy and solemn responsibility, but one that is foundational to preserving the integrity, fairness, and equity of our legal system. And one last question. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, overall, I must state that while the defense does a decent job not only finalizing their defense, but presenting their case. However, if you stop, take a step back, and think about it, Donnie's defense team had a hell of a lot more material to utilize than any of us. And I can't help but feel deep down in my gut, like we are making pretty damning points based off evidence presented that they, the defense, undoubtedly also had access to. Now, taking a subjective stance is not at all our initiative. On the contrary, we desire to find that the case on both sides was presented with as much effort and integrity as humanly possible. The thing is, I'm just left with this lingering feeling of disservice to Donnie's defense that I cannot shake. And now, I shall shape that feeling of discontent into a question for you, ladies and gentlemen. I present to you, supposing the sole responsibility of the defense was to establish reasonable doubt as to Donnie Bull's potential guilt for the double homicide of Donna and Justine Tompkins. What better way than to point out that Donna's boyfriend at the time of her death had changed the story he had given to detectives, not just about some small insignificant detail, but as to the very days he had been in the company of his girlfriend leading up to her and her daughter's murder, an absurd and undoubtedly self-incriminating number of times. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs> <laughs>